This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. It's the day after Nape. We're tired. We're here. <laughs> but we've got uh, our new friend, J.D. Smith, CEO of Encore Permian. Thanks for being here, bud. Thank you guys for the uh, for the invite in the early morning, yeah. uh, early Friday morning. <laughs> Only guys up, guaranteed. I was, like, <laughs> I was driving to the office. I was like, why do we schedule a podcast for 8 a.m.? This is just ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I apologize, everyone listening. My voice probably just sounds, I mean, we had Wade Bowen playing last night. I'm sitting there yelling at everyone, just having a normal conversation. So my voice is shut. Yeah, th- thanks to everybody who made it out, man. It was a, it was a great party. Uh, huge uh, hats off to, to Tracks for taking the lead on that and getting us involved. And tracks, Track. well, database, yeah. well, mineralware, mineralware, energy yeah. domain. Um, man, it was fantastic. Huge thanks to Wade Bowen for playing. Man, he rocked the house. So, uh, look, looking forward to doing that again next year. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, JD, tell me a little bit about Encore. What do you guys do? So, um, Encore is kind of a small little private equity back company. We started a couple years ago and. Um, early 2017 kind of got the docs done with a capital provider out of minnesota okay out of minnesota so, yeah interesting out of minnesota um <laughs> great guys um they're kind of a generalist fund and don't have a ton of oil and gas exposure so um it was a pretty nice little fit we um we kind of have two companies with our one company there and it's a mineral acquisition kind of group we get guys who are calling originating getting that getting that deal done on the on the ground, but also, you know, we kind of had that, um, the lease game and the lease game was really hot. That's kind of my background there. So okay, putting together a bunch of tracks, get them drillable and flip them. But then, but then that's kind of dead now. So is it? Yeah. We recently got to try our hand. Um, we, we, we got, we went back to our provider and, uh, got a little bit more capital and, uh, hauled off and bought a pretty good size asset for us. It was 8,000 acres all blocked up and, uh, we got to try our hand at drilling on that one, so um, pretty exciting. But just so probably said, one of the smallest uh, PE back companies out there. So you said <laughs> that you have to try your hand at drilling. So is mm-hmm. that a is that a transition and actually operating assets? Yeah. So we always we always kind of uh, would operate. So we'd get those stripper wells or whatever was HBP'd out there in the Midland Basin or the Delaware Basin, um, putting together tracks. So we weren't too scared of that. Um, what was new though is you know going after horizontal development so it's, yeah it's been a goal of mine for 20 years i'm just yeah. a shade under 20 years in the industry so yeah i've always wanted to lead a group get a group together and so we got to we got to gel our team together and very cool go do it and everything i mean so far so good it's awesome man so let's talk about your background and mm-hmm. what led up to this point so how'd you get into the industry what's what's your background from a technical standpoint so uh so it's a lot like yours um Is it? actually yeah i graduated uh graduated out of big spring another west texas guy yeah in 2000 and um i thought i wanted to be a pilot so you know, we got that old air base out in our <laughs> yeah. town and and there was a there was a guy, I think he was Norwegian, he was given flight lessons for cheap and there was a reason for that. <laughs> his planes kept catching on fire. <laughs> Wait, so this is a Norwegian guy out in West Texas giving flight lessons on you know on cheap that, yeah that yeah yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd have a bunch of um guys from west africa gabon cameroon sri lanka so yeah. you know of india there and um and then me and i would i, I thought well i gotta i gotta pay for this i was just gonna come out of pocket and um this guy was like man i'm gonna go offshore on a drilling rig i thought oh, shoot that's great two weeks on two weeks off so yeah um, I got a list off of the internet, you know, back in 2000, it was dial up still <laughs> yeah. out there and, um, it had, I don't know, a hundred something names of vice presidents of human resources and their, um, uh, their phone number. So I just started going down the list and I'm like, you know, I heard diamond offshore was looking for a good hand, just really, you know, kind of getting the Eddie Haskell on, you know, sounding like a good old boy. 
you know, hey, I heard Slumberger was looking for a good hand. And, you know, you get the assistant. It's Slumber J. Click. <laughs> that was so funny. I think it's like been like three episodes over the last five or six where people had similar story. They like Slumberger and <laughs> like Slumber J. It's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, look at that word. And I was just going down a list and hit that word. It's almost like a rite of passage to get into the oil business. Like, you, you got to say slum, Slumberger one time before yeah. you get in. <laughs> I should have known better growing up in West Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I probably heard it, just didn't know that was yeah, it. But, yeah. Uh, went through that list and, you know, got a few applications to fill out. And out of those applications, just Rowan called me back and talked to that lady. And we um, uh, went back and forth a little. She's like, you're, you're kind of young. I was just turning 19 and got on that drilling rig. And it was the uh, Charles Rowan Jackup rig. Okay. And uh, I'll never forget my first hitch out of there. We, I'm driving down, and it's it's a helicopter right out of South Louisiana, Cameron, Louisiana. Yeah. And I get there at like three in the morning to make my seven a.m. flight, and you know the cockroach comes out of the the sink at the hotel. <laughs> we uh, we're pulling through town. Have you ever been to Cameron, Louisiana? This yeah. is yeah. the end of the world, right? There's a. You uh, I, tell, take I tell a people, man, you know, South Louisiana is a foreign country. It is a different place. It's actually the only place I've ever been anywhere where you have to sign a waiver at hotels that you're saying <laughs> I will not boil seafood in my hotel room. It's like. <laughs> Where else in the United States makes you fucking sign a waiver saying that for a hotel room? <laughs> it was crazy. There's there was an S10 pickup. I'll never forget it at that convenience store in town, the only gas station, and there was like an old recliner in the back of it, and there was a grandmother had to be 300 pounds in the back of there sitting in that. And it's like 2 a.m. Like what are these people doing <laughs> running around? I, maybe they're shrimpers or something, yeah. but. I just thought, oh my God, what a... What yeah, a I spent a lot of time offshore as well. And so just flying out of, you know, South Louisiana is just, I mean, one, I, I think it's kind of like depressing. You have, like you said, you wake up at 3 a.m. You mm-hmm. got to be there for a 5 a.m. flight. Like you don't want to be there, You're, you know, carrying your one or two offshore bags and you got to sit there, wait to check in. It's just like, I don't know. It's just yep. a certain, certain type of feeling brings back bad memories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're hitting that rig and, and the smell always got me on that, on those rigs. I guess it was from the galley, but I, I, I got on that rig and I realized like I, I knew I was born oil filled trash. Me and the Charles Rowan had the exact same birth date, August 20th, 1981. <laughs> like, oh man, it's a sign. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I might as well not even try to get out of this industry. So. <laughs> tried tried my hand at that it was um it was pretty good i made roughneck pretty quick but um a few months into it i thought man this is ridiculous these guys are crazy and um this uh this boat came up to our our rig and we were doing a frack job and these guys come out um set the iron basket on the rig and they just hit it like just this big team they were all these big guys at like 35 years old and i was like what do you guys do and they start telling me about fracking and like how do i start to work with y'all and just happened to be there was a there's one guy the um kind of fluid tech e-tech had guy he was from midland texas richard pitzer oh okay um really good guy and and i think midland was you know in the state championship at that time yeah yeah so he's like what are you doing out here because there was not a whole lot of west texas guys Maybe like yeah, I mean it's odd at first. I mean, you say that you grew up in Big Spring, and the first move you made was to go offshore. Sure. I mean, yeah. it doesn't make a lot of sense when you have the oil field right in your backyard, right? Yeah, but those guys were really crazy, right? <laughs> and the money wasn't as good, and I wanted those two yeah. weeks off. Yeah, so. yeah, you can't beat that that two week rotation. So you see these frat guys come on, mm-hmm. and the, then that that got your your interest kind of peaked in what they were doing. And so what happened? They um, so they gave me um, a number in the office to call, and uh, Lee Kilpatrick, uh, I think he's actually Midland now. I signed up on LinkedIn, but I just wore him out like, <laughs> "Hey Lee, you got to give me a job. You got to give me a job." And this company was called Oscar. They had two frat boats in the Gulf of Mexico and one down in Brazil. Lee, you got to get me on. Let's do this. And uh, I think I was still 19 at the time. He uh, he he brought me on. So I think I'm the youngest modern day frack hand ever, because all the other companies, Halliburton, Slumberjay, um, oh, who else was out there? There was somebody else out there. They that you had to be 21, or you got to be 21 on land to drive a truck. So. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I kind of got that title out there. Nobody's been able to say <laughs> No that one's been able to challenge you yet. <laughs> yeah. Anybody modern day. I, yeah. Something probably happened in the 50s, you know, some 16-year-olds. Yeah. But, uh, but did that. And, man, I love that work. You got this crew environment. Um, uh, it was still really old school. Like, the first day on the boat, I go down there, and I, this 
Lee Kilpatrick, he gave me an envelope, said don't read it and hand it to him. And I later found out, like years later, my treater told me, yeah, it just said, wear his ass out. Like, they just, I guess they <laughs> wanted to see what I was made of. But I get on there, and um, this one guy from Graham, Texas, he, he says, you know, I guess I was just talking a lot of trash, just trying to trying to fit in. He's like, you keep popping off like that, and I'm going to roll you. And I said, you ain't going to do anything. Y'all might, but you ain't. <laughs> yeah. Sure enough, he, like, turns back to the galley's guys, and I mean, in – one minute they had me slammed on the deck, duct taped up, <laughs> took my boot off, duct taped it to my head, and strung me upside down on the second uh, hand railing of the of the boat. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna step back a little and quit talking so much trash. It is so funny they did that to me on my rig too. When I, when I turned 21 <laughs> for my 21st birthday, they they strapped me down, duct taped me, and then put me up on a wall. I was like, oh, this is so fucking demeaning. <laughs> it, it is. Is. My friends tried to do that at my uh, my bachelor party. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're sitting there, and the lights go off, and I get bum rushed by eleven dudes. <laughs> so it's uh, no, it's funny because when you're telling the story, like I'm thinking about back to my days on the rig, and it's funny when you're a roughneck, you're always looking for. What's better, right? Mm-hmm. And you see all these service companies coming on. I remember I'd see Siemeners come on the rig. I'd see wireline hands. I was like, man, these guys don't do shit. How they're, do I get it? They're how clean. Do, <laughs> yeah. How do I get a job like that? Yeah, I'm covered in mud. It's been busting my ass. I was like, how do I get a job like that? And that's what actually led me to getting into wireline was once I turned 21 and I could get my CDL yeah. and drive a truck, you know, I was out of there. I, I got off the rig. So it's funny to, you know, I guess that's probably just all roughnecks always looking for <laughs> the, the next move. So yours was frat. You mm-hmm. got into that. So how, how long did you work on the floors for the rigs? Sound like uh, I think I was there about uh, seven or so months. Okay, the, cool. And, and maybe five on the floor, four on the floor, something cool. like that. Yeah, so and, you know, a lot of experience. people don't have, you know, offshore community is pretty small right so mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't familiar with offshore but a jack-up rig is essentially it's just a, a it's really similar to a land rig mm-hmm. um on steroids you know they've just they've you got a deck and mm-hmm. it's a little bit bigger but it's very comparable to a land rig and um i'm sure you know back in early 2000s um you know it was land rigs you got they're nice now right you got they're crazy got fucking these top drive rigs you go in here and the 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 driller's cabin is the size of this room it's, it's yeah. cyber drilling i'm like man this is fucking wild because i broke out on a little shitty kelly rig yeah you know and right. yeah yeah like i feel like i was like the last of the the old school rig breeds and you know it's very much how these uh jack up rigs were and especially early 2000s, I'm sure. So yeah. um, when you got into fracking, you know, what what happened after that? What what kind of transpired? So um, I really liked the, uh, I like, I loved offshore. So I loved the rotation. My wife and I got married. She, she we were high school sweethearts. She was 19 and I was just turned 21 when we got married. But um, uh, we just liked the life. She she was uh, worked for her dad um, in their restaurant there in town. So she worked a whole lot while I was gone, and then we were off. And you know the Texas country music scene was coming on, and yeah. so we'd get out of town. We lived in Snyder, Texas. I mean, <laughs> all our friends were gone. They were gone to college. We were bored, but um, it was. I mean, it was it was kind of a great life there for a long time. Um, but I always wanted to kind of advance, and I always wanted to go international. So. Yeah. Um, I guess about four years into it, I really started trying to put my feelers out international, go international. Um, and I got in with Baker Oil Tools. They had this group yep. called the Gap Group, and it was really cool. They, uh, I don't know, they were kind of like, the motto was like Special Forces of Oil Field, I guess. But it was like we had <laughs> I'm a... I'm not going to say that the yeah. Navy SEALs, but <laughs> the Navy SEALs. <laughs> of the oil field, you know, with the hard hats. <laughs> So it was like we'd have skidded equipment, and it could uh, it was built on a shipping container kind of ISO type type skid. And I mean, we would just be anywhere. They'd helicopter it into Columbia jungles. We'd uh, we'd put a grid down and put it on a just some workboat in Bohai Bay, China, um, and and other places like that. So I got to I got to go out at, at China, and that was uh, that was really interesting. I've heard that's an experience. Man, offshore it was so crazy. Like. Yeah, we uh, the last company that I worked for in Venture Global Technology, um, they run expandable casing. And before the downturn, they were doing a lot of work over in China. Mm-hmm. And it was onshore. And one of the guys said he lost 30 pounds in a month yep. because it's not like you're working in Beijing. You're working out somewhere in rural China. Yeah. And you have no clue what the food is. Yeah. And he said, I just didn't eat. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't eat. <laughs> it, it was crazy. Me and the, it, thank God for the Cajuns. They brought uh, a huge deal of Louisiana hot sauce, <laughs> a huge deal of Tony Sachets, <laughs> and we just, we'd get the rice. That was easy. And then we'd just pick a gravy. Like it was, it was wild. One of, one of my buddies, he, he pulled a uh, chicken head out of there. And I mean, it was beet, gobbler, feathers, everything. Everything. And uh, I uh, I ran outside, hit the handrail, just chunking like it was so bad. You know, it's so funny though. Like with everything going on with the uh, coronavirus, people are talking about you know, um, obviously Chinese culture is much. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll eat crazy shit, right? Yeah. So everyone's talking about them eating bats. Let's go back to South Louisiana. It's like you seen these guys making squirrel gumbo with the squirrel head in it? Like that's not normal. <laughs> my my treater said the best fight he ever saw was two Cajuns fighting over a turtle in the road. Like, they were gonna turtle become soup or something. Like, like, like okay, so I go on a platform rig. Uh, it was a Hercules rig and Energy Twenty One was uh the operator and both of these guys filed bankruptcy simultaneously and so all we had in the galley was this big uh bowl of peanuts for snacks <laughs> <laughs> and then like what they were cooking was like it was like turkey necks or something i'm like what the f- <laughs> get me the hell out of here <laughs> can we just go fishing <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> So how was it, you know, you go offshore and, and was it, was the actual rig offshore in China? Or was yeah, it, on it was, it was in Bohai Bay and, and it was, uh, it was a mess. It was like a new billion dollar, multi-billion dollar probably facility. And you get on there, it was brand new and sinks are coming off the walls. Like nothing works. You wow. get up to the rig floor and, um, uh, yeah, you got kind of that platform rig style. And so it was a nice looking rig, but, um, you get to looking around and there's like one crow crofa air connection to run whatever you need diaphragm pump start your motors and there's like eight y's on it you know just everybody trying to get into that air and so there wasn't enough for anyone that's why that's why when people talk about this coronavirus coronavirus sorry um i don't think it's going to work because it's made in china (laughs) (laughs) sorry that's my bad dad for pandemic But um, it was it was just so wild working out there. The maintenance on everything was really tough. Like, you know, we we were always like at that Oscar company. We we had to do everything. We had a mechanic or e tech or just whatever it yeah. took because we didn't have the biggest budget for maintenance. So we were getting things going. But out there, man, it was it was wild. Like just getting a pair of channel locks that didn't slip while you put pressure on them or just anything like that was was difficult. I used to so. complain all the time when. They'd buy, uh, they wouldn't buy rigid pipe wrenches on our rig. They buy the cheap Chinese <laughs> shit, and break. I'm like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't grip. Like yeah. it wouldn't even grip on anything. And yeah, it's like horrible man, dies. Yeah, exactly. You know how it is, and you're just sitting there trying to get a bite on something, and it's just slipping. And you're, you already have a frustrating job in the first place, yeah. and then when your tool doesn't work properly, it just makes it that much worse. Yeah, you got to be careful loading up on that, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know what you're working with. I like to see if it's a brand name wrench before I start yeah. standing on anything or <laughs> exactly. put a put a cheater pipe on it. But um, so you go international and that was actually a big thing for me when I joined adventure because this was in 2014 and they're telling me, man, you're going to go all over the world. Yeah. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to make that next step. I want to go work, um, you know, Brazil, Saudi. I want to see all these different places. And then, uh, oil fell out. So I didn't yeah. get the chance to go international very much. Um, so you got, you got that experience, you know, how, how long were you going off internationally? I think um, I think we had about a year and a half, um, somewhere around our, our, the time our oldest daughter was, uh, our oldest kid was born was 2005, and I did it for a little bit longer. I um, I really actually thought I'd, I was going to move international. Um, I got out of China, and then uh, all of a sudden I needed to go to Italy, and uh, man, that was amazing. Like all the weight I lost in China, I found it. Really <laughs> it's called and, balance. Oh man, it was uh, so it was so due east of Rome. There's this uh, kind of little town, Pescara and Kona, like a little kind of fishing, yeah, old old yeah. you know towns, and uh, they were uh, they were drilling gas wells out in the middle of the Adriatic, and it was uh, it was a blast. It was kind of a unique time. Um, we uh, I was there a lot, and I really wanted to get in favor with the Italians, and uh, so they'd request me, and I just could rotate in and out if yeah. I needed somebody, <laughs> and it worked. And uh, so at least a year, I got to rotate in and out of there. And uh, my first trip over there, it was it was crazy. Um, boss called me, hey, you got to get on a plane in two hours. Like, the airport's an hour from where I live, and so 
I get the get on this plane, get over in Italy, get land in Rome. Guy picks me up, get off, get over to about three three and a half hours to the yard, and they're like, "Yeah, you got to get on." But I was like, "Man, my my bag, my equipment bag didn't make it. They got held up at the airport. I need some 14s." So we do a frantic search for some 14s to 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 go offshore, and then all of a sudden it's like stand down. Well, the stand down like lasted for a whole two weeks. So they put me up in basically the South Padre of uh, of Italy. So the locals go <laughs> that sounds there. Sounds terrible. It's a beach town, <laughs> a beautiful beach town, and all of these restaurants. And uh, for two weeks, I basically got an Italian vacation in the middle uh, Eastern yeah. Eastern. Uh, that's the best. Patriotic. That's the best thing about offshore work. Like, I love when jobs would get delayed, but I'm already in New Orleans waiting for a helicopter. Yeah. I'm like, oh, shit, guess I got to hang out on Bourbon Street for a couple nights. <laughs> the hurricane's coming. I yeah. hated to wish for that. That just felt wrong. But <laughs> a little time. Can in, we just get a natural disaster? Yeah, a little time in Lafayette was always fun. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, uh, I mean, it's kind of a known thing in the United States. Like, we never drill for oil in pretty places, right? Or, or mm-hmm. cool places. So, it's it's... It's not very many entertaining places to go to, but I mean, shit, you go to Italy. I mean, that's a it's hell all of good. an experience, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, I'm trying to tie the story together here because it's, it's funny. You start out in West Texas, mm-hmm. you go offshore, you continue living in Snyder, which it just kind of blows my mind to be honest, because if yeah. you're working offshore and you're not dependent on living in West Texas, it's like, you know, why, why, would, you? why would you live in Snyder out of all places too, right? So. I know. Um, it's a, that's a good, that's a really fair question. I think it was always like family. We got, we're real close. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I figured, mind. you know, it's family that kept you guys there. So you go work international. It sounded like you had your oldest kid um, mm-hmm. sometime during that point. Is that what kind of brought you? Did that bring you back? Yeah. I, I'm sure. I mean, kids change, change oh, things, yeah, right? It, it sucks being gone for two weeks or a month at a time offshore when you have kids. So yeah, is that is that kind of what transitioned you to come? I mean, I'm trying to br- bridge the gap between how yeah. you're international to, to how where, yeah, to where you're at now. Yeah. So um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, my daughter, I think she just started walking and uh, – Kara, my wife, gave her the keys, and she's standing at the bottom of the escalator coming out of the Midland Airport. Yeah, I'm like, that's it. That was that was it. I can't <laughs> do it anymore. That is that is it. Uh, so, um, getting back home, you know, things still weren't like that active. Um, I think we're kind of oh seven or so, something like that. Yeah, oh seven. Yeah, um, so and hitting, uh, hitting you know that that downturn. The ga- we had gas, but. Yeah, that was a, that was about it. But I got an engineer tech position over at Kendra Morgan. Okay, and it was really interesting. I thought, well, I've got all this field experience. So what do field guys kind of do? They go into operations or something. And I thought, man, could I? I didn't want to go to school, um, but could I become an engineer, kind of by name, you know, not yeah. necessarily by title, but uh, got into that and really loved it. Uh, had a re- good production engineer over me and. They made me go through all these old well files on the Cats field over in uh, King County or King, some county out there, uh, way out on the eastern shelf and um, learned a lot. Just got to learn that production profile and a lot of stuff. And yeah. Kept at it, kept at it. And finally, that this engineer gave me the best advice I ever took in my life. He was like, JD, you just got too much bullshit. You need to be a landman. And so I was like, what is that? And so he told me, I was like, that's what they're called. So still, you know, rat local. And, and I guess I was just so, so kind of ignorant as to the, the whole big picture. And, um, I, I got the PPDC over in Midland, you know, they had a lot of great classes. Hoxie Smith, he was a really good guy. Cause if I took off work, I didn't get paid. And, um, he would, um, give me a discount. He was like, yeah, you want to learn. So took all the land classes he got, got in the bottom of the Midland County library and, that's awesome. Just started reading all these old books that were generated like farm out books from the fifties. So yeah. here's a checkerboard farm out or a farm in or just kind of learning how a deal went and uh got a got a job with Shaw Interest, Maynard Shaw. He's a he's a neat guy. Um kind of he's definitely, you know, the old guard. He's been doing it for a long time and he ran his guys really tough. He he had a he had a good knack for quality, but he gave me a shot. Just kind of going in there, we were talking and he, I just noticed he had a psalm on his on his book uh, on his Bible open, and I think it was like Psalms one nineteen. That was one of my favorites. I'm like man, I, that's my favorite psalm. And uh, so we got to talking, and that that hit it off. It wasn't that I did all this, and he gave me a job in the courthouse, and 
I nearly got myself fired a couple times, like <laughs> running out, and it was the Rustler Hills area of Culberson, and just kind of missing a couple little details, but did eventually pick it up. And, yeah, um, did really good on the on the courthouse side, the running title. Had a uh, had a two week stint as a landman. Did you really? Yeah, it was <laughs> <With> on, <two? laughs> yeah. So it was because um, when I worked on the rigs on land, I was four weeks on, two weeks off, and mm-hmm. so <clears throat> I come from a family of landmen. And, you know, I was wanting to get off the rigs and my dad and uncle were like, well, why don't you come do some contract work for us? You know, we'll pay you $200 a day or whatever. So, okay, cool. So there I am, Midland County Courthouse, you know, mm-hmm. in the basement going, going through records, running title. And, you know, I'm like 20 yeah. at the time. And I'm like, screw this, man. I'm going back <laughs> out to the rigs. Like, that's my type of work. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you gotta, you gotta, like, I think I was at that point in life, you know, when you have kids, you, you chill out. So yeah. I was, I was calm. I, I, mean, I, was, I was definitely, yeah, still, still rough and rowdy at that point. So being in a courthouse running title wasn't, uh, wasn't my scope. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a little pissed though. I was at 175 a day. How'd you get 200? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) Wish wish I could say that was just good negotiating on my part, but that was just what I was offered. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you kind of just take any offer. I don't know what a fair price was. They they could pay me 50 and I probably would have taken it. (laughs) So, um, so you obviously you started getting a lot of experience Mm -hmm. in, in land. And then when did you decide, like, when did you decide that you wanted to go off and do your own thing. What kind of, what was the genesis of that? Um, well, I, I, I always wanted to do deals. So like you're in the courthouse and you see these deals, you read about these deals and whatever capacity. So yeah. you just get that and you're like, this is where I want to go. So I tried things like I optioned up a graph ranch for $0 and you know, that was like three months shot. Kind of give me a jump shot for 75 bucks and try to see if I could take that to somebody and flip it or things like that. We had, I don't know, a few sections in Schlacker County to, to, that we just talked people into. They they want the lease bonus, and it still wasn't too busy of a time, but um, kept doing that, and a title attorney in Midland, a uh, really good guy, he he would follow behind me to do the drilling opinions and whatnot, and uh, yeah, I guess he thought I did good enough work. He made a recommendation to one of his other clients, um, this little group of Midland Lone Star Oil and Gas. So they were looking for Wolfberry locations out in the Midland Basin, and you know, uh, this guy, mentor of mine, Jim Cawthon, good guy. You're kind of stereotypical, like West Texas oilman, right? Just, yeah. He had a saying for everything. And, <laughs> um, he was hilarious. He was a great guy. Um, uh, and, and, and there was a couple other guys in that group too. Gary Lamb, uh, uh, mineral buyer from, from years and years. They, uh, they gave me a shot. They interviewed me and said, Hey, you just go out there. And so I had kind of a, open book to look for things poured over a Midland map and sure enough found like a couple of good tracks and got them well under sub market. So this is kind of my first shot into leasing and I was really good at it. Like I didn't realize how good I was, but we'd get in there and we would really kind of talk about anything but the lease. Cause they're already wanting to do it and we just, we'd get the deal done. So I did a good royalty rate. Wouldn't have to pay too much for the bonus money. And then I was uh, I knew all the clauses well enough to to keep them in there and so and these guys told me hey if you get up if you get it below this you get an override well I mean that's just what I had to do so um, got those going and um, and Gary Lamb when he was working over uh, in the Delaware Basin and he had a lot of mineral interests so just scattered throughout the the Permian so he'd get these offers and then he talked one of the groups into saying hey let me go out there and lease for you and we'll split the difference on what I can save you. So we kind of went out there with that and they put a few million in there and they said, Hey, go lease in the Permian. So I'd find some stuff North of Pecos or loving and yeah. it's 500 an acre. Oh, that's too expensive, too expensive. So moved a little further South, you know, kind of in and around Pecos. It's look, I got a few ranches here, 250 an acre. Oh, that's too much. So <laughs> we basically went into the Alpine high proper and put together about 42,000 acres down there. Um, and for a low, low price, just, <laughs> just a few million. And 
Petrahawk comes in and they're kind of coming in the Permian. You know, they're them in Chesapeake, right? They just come in in a big way back then. And yeah. Just buying up everything in the Permian. Yeah, they just like, we're going to get our foothold. We're going to do this. So they came in there and just blew it out of the water for like 42 million bucks. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so That's awesome. Uh, so uh, I had a enormous override over the whole Alpine High and it all expired. <laughs> and, you know, but, but we did that a couple more times. And, um, you know, what was great about that is it was two chiefs and I was the Indian and one of the owner's sons kind of came in and was, uh, was also there. I was training him, but, um, man, you got to do the whole thing and we made, we got to make pitches and stuff like that. Um, just be a land manager and, and jack of all trades and, and yeah. doing deals. So that kind of gets in your blood. I mean, you just can't get rid of that. We, yeah. we did 25,000 acres in Northeast Howard County that we sold to, some Chinese individual investors that um, were wanting to get into the Permian. That was about 14 that we did that. And, cool. Um, just just really interesting. So I got to, I, I think I've leased up like personally, you know, drafted ducks, done a lot of that on about 150,000 acres. Yeah. Uh, made the land rush on the Klein Shale. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and luckily, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in there for the long run. I did hold the bag on a few leases, but most of it got, got, got out for the most part. And, yeah, yeah. And made money, but, um, it was just a wild time, right? That lease rush was insane. Yeah, for sure. So, so when did well. you, when did you start Encore? So my, uh, my partner right now, Josh Lorenz, um, I, I'd set up a manufacturing company in, um, 14. So, I kind of thought, well, all these leases are done. There's not going to be anything to buy. And I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. So you remember how hard it was to hire anybody or do anything in 13 or 14. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I came up with this business plan, like a labor arbitrage on welding up a tank. So I got 395 feet in a thousand barrel tank that I need to weld up inside and out. And uh, so we kind of took some off the shelf seam tracker technology. And I had a partner in there who was really great at welding and the processes and uh, kind of a craftsman type guy on that, and uh, we we built this this whole company from the ground up. Just you know, we're now welding them up at like forty four inches a minute. The quality was unheard of. I mean, all I had to do was get a guy in to look at it, and, and you could sell that tank in fourteen. Yeah. But then we had one good quarter, and uh, that Thanksgiving day, like it was just it was a dogfight after that. So yeah. I was in the business. It was kind of working, but I wasn't a true employee. I was just the managing partner. So. Um, I started, I talked to a friend of mine. We, 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 he was on the board of a foundation. I started the John 414 foundation. We do a lot of clean water wells in Uganda and, um, we worked together really well, just, just meshed great. And so he sold executive jets, uh, for flight options over in Dallas, Fort Worth. And he was a pilot himself. So, um, and I knew his wife, uh, from high school. She, uh, she was friends with my wife in Snyder. So, okay. Um, he moved to Midland, um, and we just started working. So he's still selling planes, but he just wanted to do mineral deal. All his clients were, you know, guys in the, in the space and yeah. had a natural curiosity. So I just kept, I just drive over. I had to get out of the house anyway. And we'd look at some stuff, do a deal. And we literally just, I, I think we put 140,000 in the business. He had a, he had a, um, a legal zoom company yeah. <laughs> already, and it was called Petro Lima. Um, and uh, kind of named after him. He's like, how, how about we just split this up and use it as a holding company? Yeah, that'll work. And man, it just snowballed. And, and we even, we took it on the downturn and we got deals done and found opportunities and just, just really snowballed it. He picked up a really great banking relationship uh, where we were able to finance quite a bit of it and um, just grow, grow, grow out of, out of nothing. And um, I think uh, when we were making our pitch to the private equity group, it's like, well, we put in 140, took that out, plus some, um, did six million dollars worth of deal, had three million dollars worth of property, property or profit, sorry, in a in this amount of time, and and we weren't even full timing it until the last maybe eight or nine months. Yeah, <laughs> um, but things were starting to get more and more expensive, so it was, it was really good good timing, you know, Mark uh, Bohor. He's, yeah. He's, he was instrumental in that and another mutual friend. Um, it's actually kind of crazy how we, how we, how we got our first CFO, uh, Josh's, uh, best friend in high school in St. Louis. Um, his little brother was in oil and gas finance. Oh, so really? we team up with him. <laughs> he sat next to a, another guy who went to this Minnesota private equity company and 
that just it's just yeah, everybody how, just knew everybody. Yeah, let's let's unpack this a little bit because you got this private equity fund mm-hmm. in Minnesota that's uh, that's committed capital to you guys. I think it's. I'm just extremely interested in your story because our story is very similar, right? Mm-hmm. And so you didn't go to college, yep. straight out of high school. You go in the oil field. Most people, I mean, look, most people think that you can't do shit if you don't have credentials, right? And so yep. I'm just super interested in this because to go into a private equity boardroom, say, hey, look, give us money. We're going to go do it. And, you know, they're looking at you and like, who the hell are you? You're like, well. Here's who I am. I've done yeah. this, 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 and this. We've put in this much money. We've done this many deals. That's that's all they need to hear, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the 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 deals they speak for themselves. So super interested in that. And I know a lot of people listening to this will think that because I can't tell you how many people I talk to, extremely smart. They have they have bachelor's degrees, but they think that they have to. I just had this conversation two days ago with with someone. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I'm thinking I, I need to go back to school for um, my MBA mm-hmm. or a degree in engineering for people to take me seriously. And I was like, I just don't believe that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that you you can do things that that you've done, JD, where you can you can build up a resume and the results speak for themselves. So I think that's super cool. But first, how did you guys get in contact with the private equity fund in Minnesota? Because that's just really random. To yeah, me. that's very strange. <laughs> yeah. So Pat Cohn, our uh, our CFO, uh, sat next to um, another guy, and uh, he was the director up there that that put the deal together. So. That's awesome. They were at Jeffrey's together. Okay. Oh, they're so, at Jeffrey's. Yeah. Okay. He just called him up, and I mean, we didn't honestly at the time. It it felt like we were trying really hard, but looking back and seeing what capital markets are like right now, I'm like <laughs> we didn't have to try at all. Like, <laughs> that, that one was one that kind of fell in our laps, and yeah, uh, it was kind of kind of interesting too. We got just we're, we're really entrepreneur, really headstrong um, in our business, so we did it as a JV as well. So we're not a portfolio team. If, we kind of thought. So you're um, not even a you're not even a, a portfolio company, right? Interesting. So they got to write a first refusal on any asset we bring to them, and if they don't take it, we could take it. So what's their thesis? I mean, is this the first oil and gas deal that they've done, or no? They've got they've got quite a few. Um, it, it's just various. They don't have a ton of exposure. Yeah, um, a few mineral groups, um, like a midstream and a um, a non op. Mm-hmm. All back, but I think I think after that last round, we we are one of their biggest uh, teams yeah. that they funded out here. So yeah, and we mentioned Jeffries. Uh, I don't know, a lot of people may not be familiar, but Jeffries big investment bank. They do a lot of oil and gas transactions. So you had someone on the team that had that that investment banking background. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he's the guy that can sit there and run models all day. Mm-hmm. You have the deal guy right here. You know that that can put together the the leasehold and, and all the all the contracts that are associated with it. So, I mean, it's it's clear that you guys had a, a good team mm-hmm. behind it. So when you went and got capital from this PE group. Was it, you know, a lot of people, uh, from what I hear, I've never raised capital for a big asset like that, but I hear that you have to have an asset first. Um, mm-hmm. that in today's climate, you know, you can't you can't just go saying, hey, we need $100 million and we'll go find something for y'all's situation. Was it, was it like that? You got a commitment first and then went and found assets? Yep, got a commitment. Um, as we were doing the docs, we found a nice little non-op opportunity in Howard County and we actually had a letter agreement to pre-fund that before we even uh, had the actual docs done. So yeah, they knew it was going to be um, not one huge deal, but a whole lot of little deals. So yeah. I think we've transacted on like 150 deals uh, in since. You say you found a good deal on a non-op. What constitutes a good deal on a non-op for you? Just not on the specific mm-hmm. deal, but I mean on non-op. Non-op's an interesting model, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's just a lot of. Uh, uh, different variables that go into it. And one of the biggest ones is that you don't have control of the asset, right? And yeah. there's not always a clear path to um, selling or exiting the asset. So, you know, what in your mind constitutes a good deal for non-op? So on this one, um, we were running the leasing strategy. Basically, it's just your purchase price. So yeah. Can you be well below market? Is this key to somebody else's? So we kind of call it trade bait. So we're going to take this little 160 and we're going to trade in Canada for something that they don't need. And and that was kind of our whole thesis at the beginning is get these pieces put together, or get these pieces and then start trading. And I mean, we did, we did like 
two-way, three-way trades. Like, we'll trade you these minerals for that lease. You ever hear? You ever minerals. hear about the kids that do this stuff on Craigslist? The light. No. The light takes something that's like a twenty-five dollar item. They'll oh, tra- they'll oh, trade oh. it for something on, yeah. on Craigslist that, that's worth more, and they just barter. And they see it's kind of like a challenge. Yeah, they'll see like they can barter their way into a car over time. (laughs) Not not many people talk about doing trades. Actually, you're one of the first ones I've ever actually talked about. You hear a lot about transactions, but you don't hear about trades. Oh man, trades are trades are where it's at for a small group like us. That's how you that's how you unlock a lot of value, right? You take that stranded 160 that somebody has is not getting to and not going to put the energy to these big companies. Like they're just swamped. They yeah, they're just trying to chase those rigs. They can't. Uh, they can't be too forward-looking on smaller yeah. assets like that. So I think. I think you know, capitalism. Right. We've we've kind of found a place in there. But once you get that stacked up to a twelve eighty or two mile unit, man, they, you know, there's your value. There's your payday. So yeah, that worked really, uh, really good for a while. We we've got a south up to position that was kind of our, our first one that we put together. So that's what we're trying to raise capital on right now. But. Um, took a non-op with some guys like driftwood and they came down there and just like blew it out of the park. They, uh, they drilled these great wolf camp nice. wells that we were yeah. part of. And, uh, before it was like, it was going to be a, a quite a bit more, uh, exploratory because the other results down there from other operators didn't, didn't make it look like a great deal, but yeah, um, just, you know, kind of, I guess we're, we're out there playing on the core of the fringe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> south of the falls or yeah. on those areas like that, but find a deal, like take a non-op with parsley and, they drill a well on the east side of their trees ranch, right? And it just came to, came in great. Well, heck, what do we, what can we put together here? So immediately go offset at that and make sure your geology is still kind of in that fairway, or at least you think it's in the fairway. Yeah. Hard trade those leases, put those together, and you got another block put together for, for development. So it's yeah. kind of, you know, just opportunistic in that way. We've done deals like, mineral deals too where we get the minerals in the surface we bought the farmhouse because she was just done with west texas and she wanted out of everything so (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why we bought a farmhouse it's so termite infested yeah (laughs) we didn't make money on it but it was ridiculous (laughs) so it sounds like y'all's strategy is really opportunistic Mm -hmm. you know it's it's you started off in minerals uh then you get into some some non-op working interest and then now you guys are going out and and drilling some new wells and Mm -hmm. so is that is like is it the strategy evolving or are you guys going to pretty much have the same playbook if it makes dollars it makes sense so, um, I think it's evolving in that we, you know, we got to get our cost of capital down on, on any kind of drilling deal. Um, that's kind of tough to do right now, but just go ahead and put those blocks together and, and really, you know, it's, it's like the double Eagle model, right? You, you kind of grow into, into that next segment of what you can do. I think everybody and, loves some double Eagle deals. <laughs> I mean, I remember when we were all out there just chasing leases, John, John and Cody and, uh, you know, we'd go to La Bodega and get these, uh, what they call it, the double eagle margarita. I think it was an extra <laughs> shot of tequila. And some, some, they, they had a, some, they had a margarita in that room. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but man, they, you know, they, they obviously kind of set that, that template out there, just getting tons and tons of deal, finding more and more capital. And yeah. I want to give bigger. kudos to y'all's capital group too, because I think that, um, you know, it takes a lot on their part to understand y'all strategy as well and understand, mm-hmm. hey, it is opportunistic, but there's value to be captured there. And I think when you have an operator like you guys matched with a capital group that understands that thesis, you know, mm-hmm. I, John Donovan's been on our show, Donovan Ventures, and that's why I like those guys. They're very opportunistic, they're yeah. flexible, and they understand that you can make you can make a buck in these niche strategies. So I think that it's a um, you know it's a good combination between between both the, the capital provider and y'all's ops team. Yeah, yeah, no, they've been they've been great. I uh, we will probably do deals with those guys for a long time. They've you you hear the horror stories out there right now. Yeah. Even teams that have won in the past and been winning, and you know you get a, you kind of get a little upside down. Nobody knew that. That all this capital is going to pull out of the markets, or the S, you know, all your S and P energy yeah. stocks are less than four percent of the. So let's talk about that a little bit. Is that, is that did y'all, obviously did y'all see that? Did y'all see that graphic the other day? The Apple one. The Apple one. Yeah. Yeah. Dan Pickering's. Oh, was it Dan? Yeah, it was shout out Dan Pickering. Yeah, it was uh, Dan that posted it. Did you see it? No, that's it. Here it is, right here. 
Man, I wish we had our. That is not right. He's it, right. Like that. It should wild. not happen. <laughs> it's wild. Like, so you know how much energy. We you guys, use? you should go check. The, go uh, to Dan Pickering's uh, Twitter account, and he posted this infographic, and it's got the logo of Apple, and it represents uh, Apple's market cap and one point four trillion. Yeah, and all the S, all the energy companies. Uh, uh, one trillion. Yeah, it's, it's just, got so it's got Exxon Mobil, Contro, Oxy, Phil sixty six. Kinder Morgan, Conoco, <laughs> kind of Chevron, like how big Apple is too. It's like holy yeah. shit. Well, it's, yeah. it's like that tweet I did a while back about um, Rigup's valuation and how they were valuable than almost every single one of the energy companies <laughs> yeah. currently. You know, it's absolutely insane. So yeah. obviously, you know, you guys have a good relationship with this group out in Minnesota. But ha- have you seen? Because obviously, the issues of capital pulling out of the markets has been a big deal. Has, have you seen the effects of that? Um, yeah, yeah, we've, uh, we've seen like, you know, all right, it's, it's not time to return capital. So how are we going to do that on, on the, at least the first fund, the second fund, we're still, we're still cranking, but later this year, we're probably going to run a process on it and yeah. see, see if we can get something done on there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it is tough. I think for every group, every, not, it, it wasn't as easy as it used to be, which yeah. 16, like how was 16 easy? The price wasn't that great there. Yeah. 15. But yeah, I think if get into a whole conversation in economics, but I feel like if you really look at it, 16, yeah, it was a downturn, but people weren't, their balance sheets weren't that distressed at mm-hmm. that point. Now, you get into the point where there's some extremely distressed companies out there. I mean, mm-hmm. throw throw a dart and you can hit some small cap. I mean, like look at Chesapeake's market cap. It's wild. Oh, yeah. It's wild. It's like how is this? I think I think max market cap was about like 126 billion. Don't quote me on that, but it was somewhere around there. It was like bigger than Chevron. It was bigger than the other guys, even at peak. It's absolutely insane. It's crazy. Man. What is it less than let sub two billion now? I don't. Yeah, that could be way yeah. off. I but I know so. it's I know it's not even a fraction of what it used to be. It's low. It's it's surprisingly mm-hmm. low. And I think it's just going lower. So I think, you know, in the industry right now, whatever angle you're coming from, people are are, are feeling the effects of it. So um JD, I wanna before we wrap this up, I really wanna ask you a couple of questions, you know, just along your journey. You know, we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast that mm-hmm. have that entrepreneurial spirit. You know, maybe they're an engineer at Chevron. They're geologists. Could be a landman out yeah. there in the courthouses right now. The, 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 the number one question, I, actually, I was laughing. I was telling someone at this at the party last night, but it's like we have some of the coolest technology come on the show. Some mm-hmm. people doing innovative stuff. And our highest performing episodes are still our EMP guys. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it's yeah. just got this. Everyone's fascinated. How do you the start? How do you start an EMP? Like, you know, Jake and I bought some stripper wells up in Oklahoma. Yeah. People, it just blew people's fucking mind. Like, how do you do that? How, how do you, <laughs> it wasn't, we just raised a little bit of money and went and did it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, what's your advice to, to people that are looking to jump out? I'm sure you've learned a ton of lessons over the years. Yeah. Um, do you have anything that like really sticks out about what you could have done better along the journey or just something that might be helpful for people that, that are looking to take that next step? I don't know. I just, uh, I knew I always wanted to do this. Like when I was offshore fracking and drilling horizontals, like this is what I want to do. Never did I ever think it would happen in West Texas, but yeah. So, so, you know, that was, that was definitely opportunity. And then, uh, I think the tenacity to go after it. Like, I, I mean, I got a big chip on my shoulder, right? That degree is still like, it still drives (laughs) me, right? You gotta, you gotta go after that. But I think the mentality, uh, that really helped me. And I mean, we, we've got, been married three kids um providing for them and i just had this mentality like i don't work for a day rate like uh, yeah after that first big deal um it was okay i'm a junior partner like i don't need i don't need a overhead and it wasn't always easy like we'd, we'd put it together and you'd have to you'd have to kind of stay in there so i think you gotta you gotta have your your bills right. We didn't have insurance. Had had two kids without insurance and prepaid. Like Man, you're, you're you can prepay here. that. Been there, done yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, and you just like you, you just don't worry about you know the things that people worry about. I think they, that a lot of people just get in their own way. And yeah. as far as it's um, entrepreneurs, and then just you've got to read a lot of books. Like you need yep. to be reading yep. a minimum of twenty books. And yep. if you're reading fifty books, and I'm not talking like lord of the rings like this <laughs> needs to be heavy business material absolutely um whatever whatever discipline you're going to go in you better really know about it yeah find some people and absolutely. ask a bunch of questions too yeah i think um i think you know from hearing your story 
you always knew all along that you wanted to do something right. Mm -hmm. And it's, sounds like you were always on the look for opportunity and I relate and that, I mean, I'd be out on my rig scrubbing the rig, you know, it's 110 degrees out in Midland. I'm busting my ass scrubbing the rig and I'm like, man, I wonder what the economics are of owning a rig. How do I, how do I buy a rig? Is this, you know, you know, what are we making a day and, and day rate? You know, I think we're drilling footage at that time. So I'd I'd be running the numbers, you know, run upstairs, make a connection, get back downstairs. I'm thinking about it again. So, you know, always, always looking for opportunity and always meeting people and always, I can't, cannot um, express how important to continue your continuous learning, Mm -hmm. reading, talking to others. That's what's so great about this show is that people get access to someone like you where they can hear about your experiences. And I hope that it opens up someone's eyes like, Hey, we, this guy, he didn't go to college. He didn't have, you know, the credentials on his resume. He just went out there and did shit. Just made it yeah. happen. Yeah, you like, make money. People <laughs> give you money to make yeah, more money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty all, all, amazing. All you need is that first one to, to, I, make, to make money. And then I it, think the yeah. biggest lie people tell themselves is that they, they, they need to have something before they can do something. And then they get yeah. that and they're like, oh, well, now I need an MBA. Or now I need this. Or people are never going to trust me. It's always that self-doubt, like feeling like they're not good enough. Um, I, I think with us, I think we've been a little... Uh, you know, sometimes maybe a little bit overconfident, but we've learned so much from that and, and just never really haven't asked permission from anybody to do anything, you yeah. know, and going out there and just getting it done, yeah. you know, and I think that is, um, that and the continuing education, obviously, I guess just from knowing you for 45 minutes, you know, I, I could tell the landman side of things mm-hmm. and you knowing how to talk to people helps you tell a story. Yeah. And I think that is probably significantly played in just your networking and stuff. Cause you know, it's still the people business first mm-hmm. and foremost, Yep, you got to have some good bullshit. <laughs> you, got, you got to. You got to. But JD, if anyone wants to find you, man, are you on LinkedIn? You guys yeah, have definitely on LinkedIn. All right. J.D.Smith and um, Encorepermian.com, our website. Uh, cool. And you're, okay. you're in Midland, right? In Midland, downtown. Right. So if you guys ever want to hit him up, be sure to reach out to him. Great guy. Um, I'm sure that, that there's a lot that can be learned from uh, JD from having continued conversations. And I'm sure if you want to do a deal, he's he's willing to talk. So That's right. That's right. <laughs> Always want to do I've never, never seen one I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, JD. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening to the show once again. Um, we're, we're, we're closing in really fast on 100,000 downloads. We couldn't do that without you guys. We couldn't do that without our wonderful guest uh, who really make this show so uh, if you could just take a second and share with your friends uh, your colleagues uh, leave us a rating review that really helps us out and we'll catch you guys on the next episode